Hi folks. Before we get into the show, I'm going to make a little plug for the Bicycle Stories year-end pledge drive. Much like public radio, this podcast is listener-supported. As it grows, the goal is to bring on sponsors. And side note, if you're a bike company that wants to sponsor a podcast with an audience of dedicated bike nerds, give me a shout. But for now, it's entirely listeners supporting this podcast. There are a handful of awesome, generous listeners who've committed to monthly pledges through Patreon. Whether it's just a dollar or two a month or much more, those pledges do a lot to keep the podcast going. My goal for this year-end drive is to get 50 new patrons. That's just 4% of our listenership chipping in. There are perks for patrons, such as access to a bi-weekly newsletter and story roundup and swag like t-shirts. You can make your pledge at patreon.com slash thebicyclestory. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thebicyclestory. That's my pitch. Now here's the show. Welcome to The Bicycle Story. I'm your host, Josh Cohen. On today's show, I talked with Steve Fastbinder, better known to some as Doom. Steve is a badass adventurer who combines mountain biking, rock climbing, and packrafting to explore deep into the backcountry. His trips require the sort of endurance and suffering that tend to leave you either in awe or scratching your head wondering why. Steve and I talked about his motivations to keep pushing his personal limits, as well as how he got into the sort of adventuring in the first place, his proudest moments, balancing risk and reward, and a whole lot more. Now, here I am with Steve Doom Fastbinder. Yeah, I'm out in Mancos, Colorado. That's 30 miles um, west of Durango. Okay, cool. So is that like uh, Front Range, Colorado? No, it's about seven hours from the Front Range. Oh, okay. About as far as you can get. Gotcha. Um, Cool. Uh, I guess that makes sense to kind of be out out in the middle of nowhere for the kind of stuff you're into yeah definitely um you know the desert utah i mean i'm in the four corners region so it's super close to the desert and uh you know the moab area is close and all the bigger rivers out in utah are super close gotcha did you grow up in that region um no i grew up in central colorado um really small town called westcliff cool how'd you uh How'd you get turned on to mountain biking, climbing, sort of adventuring in the first place? Hmm. I don't know. I was always I was always into doing stuff outside, you know, as a kid. Although my family, you know, they weren't really into that kind of stuff. I just found it on my own. Really, um, started skiing and biking as a kid, and just loving being outside as much as possible. Um, it just kind of went from there. As you know, I grew up just continue doing all those things but seeking out like i don't know a deeper experience sure yeah when do you think it sort of became a central part of your life or was there ever a point when you made sort of a conscious decision to like build build your time around the ability to have these bike or ski or whatever adventures um you know i don't think there was a there wasn't like a oh i I have to do this kind of moment um i think it was kind of just more uh you know it just happened pretty naturally for me. It's always a big part of my life. Yeah, I don't know that there was really a defining moment. Um, although there was there was a defining moment when I went skiing for the first time. I knew I was going to do that a lot as a kid. I was 12, and it was right before we moved to Colorado. And I knew I was moving to Colorado, so I was pretty stoked to like be taking up a new sport and moving to Colorado where there was actually lots of skiing. Where were you living before that? Um, I was living in northern Wisconsin, kind of up uh, by the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Interesting. What what brought your family to Colorado? Uh, 
strangely, our uh, house burned to the ground and we lost everything we had. So uh, we kind of like knew we wanted to pick up and move and it seemed like the right time to do it since we had nothing <laughs> to lose and made the move to Colorado. Um, I guess it was a, a year after a house burned down. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's not your typical uh, childhood moving story. No, it certainly wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, so how did you, you're living in Colorado, you're a teen getting into the outdoors, how did you uh, learn to climb or how did you get more into mountain biking? Was it just sort of like natural progression, you met other people that were into it? Uh, yeah, sort sort of. Um, you know, climbing actually um, might surprise you, it's fairly new for me, but cycling has been the, the thing that I've had throughout, throughout my whole life. And it's been a pretty important part of my life, um, you know, cycling in all different forms. But, uh, yeah, as a kid, I always had like some sort of bike. And then after our house burned, I got like, you know, the shitty Murray, Team Murray kind of mountain bike, uh, you know, from the 80s or the mid 80s and, uh, and started riding that thing all over the place and then moved Colorado you know, there wasn't really mountain biking and trail riding and stuff like that where I lived. Um, that wasn't really a thing that was happening yet where I lived. So, you know, biking was just to get from one friend's house to another or to school and back, things like that. Um, and, you know, ride through the woods when it, when it made sense. And as far as biking is concerned, you know, I turned 16 and kind of left the bike behind for a few years. And I moved back to my dad's place um, just to work for him for a year after high school and that's in northern Illinois, which I uh, subsequently hated living there. Hmm. And uh, I did buy a mountain bike, a more modern mountain bike, in the early 90s then. And, uh, and started riding there and knew that I wanted to move back to Colorado. And so first chance I got, moved back to Colorado and, uh, and started to go to art school in, Dur or in Denver for a little while. And figured out that art school and school in general is really not my thing. And biking was. So I uh, also subsequently crashed my truck at that time on some icy roads in the city and had to ride my bike everywhere, which was kind of fine by me. Uh, it was cheaper, more efficient, and way more fun. And dropped out of art school and got a bike messenger job. And from there, you know, the bike thing has been a huge part of what I do. Gotcha. Cool. Um, I feel like that happens to a decent number of people I've spoken to where they're like kind of into bikes. And then for one reason or another, they end up without a car, without the option to drive right. a car. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, bikes, bikes work for me. Bikes will become this central part of my life. Yeah. It wasn't really something I'd thought about. Um, it just, like you said, just kind of happened. Um, and it was kind of a, a fortuitous thing. It really got me back into the bike and loving the bike more. And, and the bike's always been a big part of like how I get around. And when I've lived in cities, I've usually not owned cars for that reason, because having a bike and riding a bike in the city is so much better than dealing with traffic and all the associated parking, et cetera. Um, and I've lived in other cities along the way. And, and you know, the bike is, you know, Portland, for example, the bike is definitely the way to go. What brought you out to Portland? Um, I had moved from the Front Range to Durango and spent a little time in Durango and uh and just was living in a household with a bunch of people that were super cool and young had tons of energy and they all decided to move to portland and i just broken up with my girlfriend at the time was like well you can always come back to durango if i want and i just moved on a whim to portland with them and ended up staying for four years portland's got a huge huge bike scene um i mean i didn't really know at the time i just 
knew that Portland was rainy. That's about all I knew when I moved there. But uh, yeah, I ended up meeting tons of awesome people there. And, and that's when I was doing a, a lot of racing. And, uh, and it made sense to live in Portland, be a part of the bike community, tons of racing going on, lots of places to ride. And, uh, and I ended up doing like the cyclocross series there for a couple of years, which is a huge thing in that area. Pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, when, what, uh, what timeline was that? I'm trying to that just was sort of think. In, like... uh, that was in the early 2000s. Okay. Like 2000. And I think I did the cross crusade series in the 2000 and two and three or maybe 2003 and four i can't remember but yeah it was big then but now it's crazy exploded yeah yeah they get like well over a thousand people coming out to the races every weekend to race not including participant or uh spectators right right it's it's hard to believe yeah um so when was it uh when you moved back to colorado that you maybe started getting into this like desert biking combining biking and paddling and whatever else is that when you started sort of pushing your boundaries as an adventurer uh yeah definitely um you know around that time 2004 i'd been racing bikes like an endurance mountain biking and 24-hour racing and, and you know had gone to a lot of larger races and had good successes but those types of races are really hard on the body you're riding 200 miles at a time and just getting getting pretty worked so, you know, my body was like, hey, you probably shouldn't do this so much anymore. And so kind of let the racing thing fall to the wayside and uh, subsequently was able to save a lot of money because race fees are expensive and traveling for racing is very expensive. And uh, yeah, it's when I moved back to Durango and Durango just has so much opportunity for that type of adventure riding and touring. Um, I mean, the Pacific Northwest does as well, but our weather down here is so ridiculously nice. Like we get so much sunshine. You can go out all the time and have good weather. So it's really conducive to like being out as much as possible. It's interesting to hear you say you went from endurance racing to the sort of adventuring and touring. I know Mike Kiriak, uh, Mm -hmm. who you are friends with and ride with also had sort of a similar path from like super endurance uh, yep. mountain bike racer to super endurance adventurer yep mike's a good friend and we've definitely we're on parallel paths for sure there's no doubt um i met mike at one of my first endurance races and we've been good friends ever since cool did he play a part in sort of like getting you into uh exploring and adventuring and touring no not really um we you know we had parallel paths in the racing thing and then we I quit racing and that's kind of where I would see him the most. And then I probably didn't see him for like four years um, after that. And I just started doing my own thing, getting into pack rafting and, you know, and riding around in the Durango area. He's not far from here, actually four hours, but there's quite a bit of time where we didn't see each other. And then uh, over an adventure trip, we met up again in Alaska and that was the Lost Coast trip um, in 2000. And I want to say 10, I believe. And uh, we were both pretty new into pack rafting, and we did this kind of huge trip with Roman Dial and Eric Parsons, Dylan Kinch um, on the Lost Coast, and uh, and that's kind of how we reconnected. And uh, and we hang out and do lots of stuff like that all the time now. I think that Alaska trip, reading about that, was sort of uh, the first I came across your name, where mm-hmm. uh, you were, you know, part of this pretty badass group. Uh, doing a pretty giant trip in Alaska. And I remember being just sort of uh, 
in awe of that sort of pushing the limits or what seemed to me like definitely pushing the limits. Yeah, definitely pushing the limits on, on gear and, and what pack rafts and, and bikes can do. Um, dragging bikes along the coast in Alaska, it's just not so great for your gear, but you're able to access some places that are pretty radical and, and travel through them faster than if you're walking. But, and I don't know if you've seen some of uh, Eric's earlier Lost Coast trips, but they broke a chain ring on the way and had to have like one dropped off by a plane in the middle of nowhere. I don't even know if the plane touched down. I think they might have just thrown the box out the window. Um, but, (laughs) yeah, but so things like that, you have to be prepared for. And then with pack rafting too out there, um, definitely pushing the limits of what pack rafts can do and throwing bikes on top of these little four or five pound boats is is kind of reaching the limit of what they can do, but they're made for it. Yeah. Um, how, how did that trip come about? And I guess for, you know, people who are unfamiliar, can you just describe what you guys did? Um, yeah, so what we did was we we flew so we all met up and we all flew from anchorage down to um where we start we started in yakutat which is a fly in fly out fishing village on the alaskan um coast down south kind of on the uh, panhandle of alaska so north of Juneau, but south of cordova and uh it's that really skinny part of alaska panhandle like i said And, uh, so that area contains really wild beaches, um, very, very few people and huge, huge mountains rising right out of the ocean, um, the St. Elias and the Wrangles. And, uh, so you're on the beach and you're looking up at these 14, 15, 16,000 foot peaks and they're just a few miles away. So it's a very wild and big place. And there's fairly rideable beach between Yakutat and Glacier Bay, or so we'd hoped. Eric and Dylan had the year before done the Lost Coast North, and that was from Cordova down to Yakutat. So we were then completing Yakutat down to Glacier Bay and the, the whole Lost Coast for those guys. Um, and then Mike Roman, Dylan, and Eric and I were doing that second section together. And it all came about like Roman got a fat, a fat bike, and Mike had gotten a pack raft, and I had a fat bike and a pack raft. And we were all doing the same kinds of things, but all in our separate zones. And we all have blogs and, you know, know each other through those things. So I think it was Roman that sent out the message. Maybe it was Eric. I can't remember. But sent out a message. Hey, we want to do this trip. This is a great group. Respond if you want to go. We're, we're thinking about making this happen in like a month and a half. And so I was super stoked to do that. And it was a great way to connect, reconnect with Mike. I always wanted to get to meet Roman. And I knew Eric from years earlier from uh, Alaska Riding. And, uh, and so it kind of came about like that. Um, so then the trip was down the Lost Coast from Yakutat to Gustavus or Glacier Bay. And like I said, it's a really wild place. There's no roads. There's no trails. There's, there's no people along the way. Um, very, very remote place. And you have a number of big obstacles along the way, um, mostly water obstacles, big rivers that come in that you couldn't possibly, you know, walk across large, large Grand Canyon style rivers coming out, but they're of course glacially fed. So they're ice cold, icebergs kind of floating out. And, uh, and also you have some glaciers that come out onto the beach and they calve right into the open ocean. So those are big obstacles that you have to get around. And of course, the only way to do that is with a pack raft. And that's where the pack raft comes hugely into play on a trip like that. I think we used, so it was like a 10 day trip. I think we used the boats 22 separate times in 10 days. So huge, huge aspect of the trip. Do you feel like that was the hardest trip you had done 
to that point? Um, it was the most involved for sure. As far as like physical abuse, it was pretty bad. Um, but some of the 24 hour races I'd done, those are pretty body abusive too, but in a completely, uh, you know, in a completely different way, because at a race you, you have people all around, you have first aid, you have an ambulance on site. Like it's, if anything happens to you, you're rescued in you know, a matter of minutes. But in Alaska, especially where we were, you don't get those types of, uh, you know, buffers. Um, there's no one there. You, you know, we had a sat phone, of course, didn't have to use it, but, uh, yeah, rescue isn't forthcoming out there. That, uh, yeah, that, uh, sort of jumps to something I was thinking about is sort of this, you know, idea of risk and reward that is something every backcountry adventurer has to consider and deal with. And, um, years, a couple years ago, uh, before I had this podcast, but was doing stuff with the bicycle story, I interviewed Kyle Dempster about his mm -hmm. climbing and his adventures. And I know that his and Scott Adamson's, uh, deaths hit home for you a couple Big months time. ago. Um, so I guess my question is just how do you how do you consider risk and reward? So to sort of do you have uh, I guess I'll just ask that how do you consider the risk of the trips versus the reward of the trip? Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a, a consideration. Um, you know, I sign up for these trips and I plan trips like these uh, because they're they're things they're places that I want to go and choosing your partners is a huge part of that. Um, and so like when I'm planning a trip and inviting people, I choose very carefully the people that I invite on a trip. Um, and I feel like when I get invited on a trip, like I've been chosen for a reason, um, to be on that trip because I have whatever skills are necessary. Um, and I'm going to bring something that's going to add to the trip and not detract. Um, and that's what I look for in partners too. Um, Scott and Kyle being trip partners of mine in the past. Um, yeah, we all want to go to these wild places and sure it's dangerous. Anything can happen. Um, I think you just kind of, when you go on a trip like this, you know, you're going to have hazards. You do as much as you can to research and, and know the area and know your, you know, and dangers that you might be up against. And then as you're out there as a team, you decide how you're going to mitigate any of those dangers, um, and how much of a risk you're going to take. So on the lost coast, some of the risks we had were incoming and outgoing tides that can sometimes be swift um, and they do change. So a, t a tide chart and the ability to read that tide chart is crucial. Um, and Roman and Eric had had lots of experience with that. So they were in charge of that. Um, you know, Mike and I not being coastal people at all. Um, you know, we kind of sat back on that and let those guys do the decision making. When they said go, we'd go. And that's kind of how that stuff works. So you, you kind of put people in charge or people just take charge of, you know, different aspects of the trip and, uh, and good decision making in the field is pretty huge. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't had any trips where I'm like, that's too dangerous. I'm not going to go and do that. But I guess I've, I've backed off some things along the way. I can't think of anything specifically right now, but there's definitely things where you, you back off and you decide, oh, okay, that's too dangerous. Well, I guess on the lost coast trip, the first trip we did on the lost coast, there was um, a, the, a giant glacier that comes out. It's called the um, La Perouse Glacier, and it comes out into the open ocean. So basically it blocks the whole beach for a couple of miles. And uh, you have three choices. You can either try to go in front of it at low tide, um, which is what we initially did and planned on doing. 
um, you can go over the glacier, but we didn't have glacier um, gear, you know, no crampons, ice axes, ropes, any of that kind of stuff. Or you can paddle out into the open ocean and go around the thing. But you have breakers coming onto the beach and then you don't know what the landing zone is going to look like on the other side of this thing because you can't see it. And so that was probably our most dangerous thing that we had to deal with on the Lost Coast. Um, and there was a lot of discussion between all of us and how we were going to deal with it. Um, we, the best beta we had was years earlier, some friends of Romans had hiked the Lost Coast and they had walked in front of the glacier at low tide. The glacier had receded some at that time that year. And at low tide, um, they waited for low tide and walked in front of it and were able to make it no problem. So when we got there, we kind of planned to camp and hit at low tide at the right time the next morning. But from when the moment we got there, it looked really bad. It looked like even at low tide, there was going to be water crashing into the base of this thing. So we camped. It was pretty tense. And next morning, got up, pushed our bikes to the glacier. It looked kind of bad, but it looks like we could get through we decided to push on past a few first ice blocks that are out in the ocean. As the waves were coming in and out, you kind of watched the sets and ran around these big blocks and then jumped back onto the beach as the waves crashed into these blocks and try not to get swept out with your bike or any of your gear. And that's kind of how that went. And then we got to a point about halfway across that just wouldn't go. There's no way I wasn't going to go. We weren't going to make it. And, you know, you only have a certain amount of time before high tide starts coming back in. And so we decided to retreat. Best way to retreat was just go right back around all the blocks we'd done. Kind of knew how to well, watch the sets and got back to the main, the main beach on the other side. And we had to have like a come to Jesus moment. Like, what are we going to do? That didn't work. It was super sketchy. The ice blocks were falling off and all kinds of rocks and water was coming off this thing. And it's like this 300 foot face. It's really sketchy. Not a place you really want to hang out. And so we're on the beach and everyone's like, okay, having their opinions and kind of Roman wanted to go over the glacier and cause he's has lots of experience on and over glaciers with bikes, you know, over the last 20 years. And Eric really wanted to push out and go out into the open ocean and paddle around the thing, which definitely was the easiest way to go around the fastest way. But we had to deal with launching our boats into the open ocean and breakers. And it was kind of like a big break right there. And if you get trundled by these waves, you kind of get worked, your bikes, you know, your boats can be destroyed. You can lose gear, um, none of it good. So we kind of took a vote and decided, and Roman conceded, and he said, okay, Eric, if you go first and you make it, that's a sign we'll all go to. And so Eric said, okay, I'll go first. And, uh, and this, that's how it went. And Eric went first, and you know, it took him a couple of tries, but boom, he shoved out and made it. And we were all like, holy shit, he just made it. Fuck, now I have to do that. <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of how it went. And uh, I think maybe Roman went next and then Dylan. And I had, I think I had the only dry suit in the group. Everyone else just had like rain pants and jackets. And, uh, you know, you just get completely wet if you're standing in water like that immediately. So I had a dry suit. So I volunteered to go last and help everyone and be in the water and help every, pu everyone push their boats out, you know, because these waves are coming in and getting slapped by them and having to maintain your gear and waiting for the set to be right and then launch. And so I was kind of helping hold the boat, hold the bike and push out when, the, you know, the set looked good. So then I'm standing on the beach after launching everyone by myself and I got to do this alone. I'm like, fuck, what if I don't, what if I don't make it out or what if I crash? Um, so it felt a little lonely and these guys are floating farther and farther and farther out to sea. And I'm like, oh God, okay. And then, you know, you're kind of like 
really getting antsy or I was getting very antsy. Like I got to do it soon, but I don't want to go too soon, but I want to get out there and finally just watched the set waited and pushed out and kind of barely made it over the big wave that broke and made it. And we all paddled out together, crossed in front of the glacier and landed on the other side. It's, it's kind of how we dealt with that risk. Uh, damn, that sounds very intense. It was pretty intense at the time. Um, I think, uh, no, I know for a lot of people listening, that does not sound appealing in the slightest. Um, <laughs> it was a special kind of fun. Yeah, definitely. Type type three, maybe? Yeah, the, I'd say, yeah, yeah, definitely. Brand, um, it breaks into the type three territory. Um, so what, I guess, on the the opposite side of the risk spectrum, what is the reward for these kind of trips for you? What, uh, what draws you to them? What keeps you pushing your own limits? Um, well, I, I think I've said this before, but I'm always stoked on seeing what's around the next corner and, you know, something like, like that story. Um, you can't see what's on the other side of that glacier until you get to the other side of the glacier and continue on the route. And these are all places I'd never been before. And of course I want to see what's, around that corner um and that definitely keeps me coming back and keeps me going on a trip like that like we all wanted to see what was around the next you know bend or around the other side of that glacier um and it's also like a you know it's a you have personal goals like oh i want to you know can i can i do this can i can i you know can i with my brain and my body figure this out and get this trip done um and all these obstacles along the way they're they're kind of fun to to figure out and to like to vet out what's going to happen and how you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite place you've been or trip you've done something that you, uh, feel most proud of? Mm, I mean, that last coast trip was pretty huge. Um, it was pretty big a year before that I had done a trip and uh, I just kind of fully planned it out by myself. I spent a lot of time, um, figuring out the route and putting it all together. And I brought my friend, John Bailey, who lives um, in Durango here. And, uh, and this was like my first pack rafting trip. So I bought a pack raft and, uh, this is out in Utah, um, leaving from near where I live here in, in Colorado. And, uh, it was like a two week trip and I wanted to paddle the Colorado river, the dirty devil river, which rarely flows. It's a small desert river. And then the Escalante river, which is um, also very rarely paddled, but I wanted to put all that together um, via bike. So it was a couple hundred mile route with three big, um, pack rafting objectives along the way. And, uh, yeah, I, t I spent a ton of time figuring all the routes in and out of these canyons and how to make it work. Um, and everything ended up working. The water level was really low in the dirty devil, but it was pretty good on the Escalante. So we dragged our boats a lot on the Escalante and then we paddled decent amount on the, or we paddled Paddled a lot on Escalante and, and dragged our boats on the Dirty Devil a lot. Um, I don't know. That was because it was a first big pack rafting trip and it really went well. It felt like a huge success. Um, or no, I'd like to do that one maybe like ten years after the you know we did it like as a like a ten year anniversary trip. I'd do that one again. Interesting. I I assume you don't often or maybe ever repeat trips that you've done. No, not really. I mean, each one's kind of custom and it's kind of like a a goal to get that done and see how it goes. And yeah, I, I'd, I'd much prefer to go and do larger expeditions, um, that are always new, you know, like I have my favorite rides and small things that I like to do that are easy and, 
but help maintain fitness and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, favorite rides I do all the time, but expeditions, it's just about going out once and doing it or seeing how it goes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, these days, how do you decide on a trip? How do you start? What's your starting point for new expeditions? Uh, it's, it's always different. Um, you know, it depends. Sometimes I'll have a friend who's like, Hey, I was kind of looking at this zone. We should maybe do something there and that'll light a fire and I'll start looking or they'll have, have already looked and be like, Hey, what do you think about this? And then we look together and try to put some trip together in a place that we've never been. <clears throat> so that's part of some of that. Um, in the desert area around here, um, I'm always just looking for places that I haven't been. And so putting trips together out in the desert, um, it's just about exploring like my backyard a little deeper and more in depth or uh, seeing it from different angles. And then, of course, uh, we mentioned climbing earlier, but that's a new thing for me, too. So sometimes having climbing objectives is and is an is a way that I want to see, you know, some of these desert landscapes and climbing towers. And of course, biking and pack rafting is my favorite way to get to places. So if it all works out that I can pack raft and bike to a tower, um, that's, that's an instant awesome trip for me. What is it about the, uh, the desert that you like so much? Uh, desert is, it, it looks like it's, you know, when you get out there, you look out across the landscape and it generally doesn't look like it's that hard to, to deal with. And, you know, it kind of sometimes looks flat because you're standing on top of like a plateau, but what you don't see is all these little arteries and canyons and it's super complicated terrain. Um, and in each one of these little like alcoves and arteries and little river basins and drainages, it's like each one is a unique little world, depending on if there's water or not, how much shade it gets, what elevations at. it's uh, super, super diverse out there and really difficult to make your way through it. So you got to get creative, um, and getting creative with biking and pack rafting and climbing, you know, my three favorite things and that landscape tends to lend itself to that. But, uh, it's also my backyard. It's really close. How did you get the nickname doom? That is definitely something I've always wondered. <laughs> Everybody wants to know that, I suppose. Um, so I had mentioned early in the two thousands or actually late 99 ish, late in the nineties, I moved to Durango for the first time and started living with a bunch of these, um, kind of wild folks that I ended up moving to Portland with and they had just gone in 99 gone to Burning Man and that's all they could talk about they were stoked on Burning Man and they wanted to go again and I ended up joining with them in 2000 and going and we made all these crazy costumes and made this pretty wild art car out of our friend's old car and uh, you know we spent like the, the summer evenings making this art car it was pretty crazy and we all had character names I was Dr. Doom and uh, so that's kind of how it was born. And we had um, Admiral Clax and Master Bunny and a few others that didn't really stick. But uh, <laughs> we, were, we were a crazy little clan. And we all ended up going to Burning Man. And I took a couple of my friends um, from that group out to, um, to Reno before Burning Man. And I was like, hey, I want to do this 24-hour race. And would you guys be my pit crew? And yeah, you know, they had no idea what a mountain bike race was like. They'd never been to anything like that before. So they went, they were my pit crew. They had no idea what they're getting into. And I stayed up all night, did the race, you know, and they stayed up all night with me and helped push me through and feed me. And uh, I ended up winning the race, which is kind of awesome. And they're like, after the race, they're like, oh man, wow, that was crazy. I can't believe you do that shit. And I'm like, yeah, I can't believe I do it either. And I'm limping around. And they're like, what if you win a big check? 
And then we're waiting for the award ceremony, you know. And I'm like, oh, a big check. Like, that would be awesome. And <laughs> so we decided to put all our um, Burning Man regalia on these crazy costumes. And uh, and they call the names and I get up on the podium. I have this crazy-ass costume on. And they actually bring out big checks and champagne. It was, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't think maybe racing isn't quite the same, you know, 16 years later. But uh, back then, it was big checks and champagne. And my friends just thought it was the funniest thing. And so we go to Burning Man, and we're supposed to meet the rest of our crew there, and they're not there. And, you know, there's no cell phones back then, and there's no service then anyways. And we're waiting around, and Burning Man's a huge place. And we're just hoping that our friends show up. And we're there for like 24 hours with kind of nothing except my big check to sleep on. <laughs> and <laughs> literally sleeping on a big check. We had like a gallon of water and like a little bit of food, and I'm destroyed. Um, and finally our friends show up, they had this epic and they crashed the trailer with the art car on it and, and, you know, I had to go all the way back to Durango and start again and lost a bunch of the food and camping gear and just like gone across the highway and gotten run over by a semi. It was, it was insane. They had this crazy story and I'm like, Oh, I want a big check. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how doom was born. Um, but then after that we moved to Portland and I was, uh, I had a messenger job there as well. And, you know, as, as you may know, messengers always have nicknames and kind of just stuck doom it seems super appropriate that all those years ago the uh the name doom was born in the black rock desert and then has <laughs> stuck with you through all your desert it adventures it certainly has stuck yeah <laughs> um you mentioned uh, you mentioned in an email that you like to or that you keep your life in a semi-controlled state of chaos and you like it that way. Can you sort of explain to me what you meant? What is what does that semi-controlled chaos look like for you? Uh, it just seems like I have a lot of uh, different trips going on, and I don't know. I like to. Uh, I, I think I sign up for more than I can handle a lot of the time, so it seems chaotic. Um, you know, taking up climbing and and pack rafting and, and all these things that, uh, you know, it ends up being, <laughs> there's a lot of opportunities for trips and, you know, I get calls from people like, Hey, I want to do this trip. And sometimes I'm super pumped and sometimes I'm not, but most of the time I'm really pumped and I almost, almost always say yes. So it seems like I'm, I'm always going on one trip or another, but yet trying to maintain my, uh, awesome job at Alpaca Raft and, uh, they're super cool to employ me and, uh, and they're pumped on all the trips that I do. And, uh, with that, I can make the boats that I need for trips, and uh, and I think it's good for them too. You know, they get tons of free advertising from me being out there using products to basically the edge of their limit. What do you do for Alpaca? Um, I do manufacturing, testing, uh, photography when necessary. Um, you know, I mean, I guess some social media, I suppose, because I do a lot of photography for them um, and my blog as well, but. Uh, yeah, I, I wear many hats there, I guess. Sure, yeah. Um, I'd imagine that's pretty common for small outdoor companies like that. Totally, yeah. Um, is the photography, when you went to art school, was it for photography? Um, yeah, it was, actually. Um, that was in the, deep in the film days, though, so um, very different from, from nowadays. And, you know, I kind of let photography go for a long time there and, uh, and took it up kind of at the same time that I took up these larger adventure trips that I do just starting with a small camera that I could afford at the time, moving up slowly as I could afford it. But yeah. now it's, a, it's definitely a big part of what I do. 
what sort of photography were you doing in art school? Did it have sort of a similar like documentary bent? No, I mean, for art school, it was just literally whatever the course, you know, that I was doing needed. So it was, you know, it was just the basics and a lot of darkroom time. And, um, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't project based necessarily. It was more like how to based. What drew you to art school in the first place? Why'd you want to be a photographer? Uh, I'd done journalism in high school and it was kind of the only class that I really gave a shit about. Um, cause it was, it got me out of the classroom and not much of a classroom person. So I could go out and shoot, um, and, and do that and be in the dark room as much as possible. So I didn't really feel like I was going to go to a, a standard college and, and art school photography seemed like it made sense. And I thought I'd give it a college try as I say, hmm. but uh, it didn't last very long. Sure. Um, that's cool. Tell me, uh, tell me about the, are they called the Devo Explorers, the like youth adventure yep. crew you work with? How do yeah, you yeah. get involved with that? Um, well, in Durango, um, the Durango Devo program was started 10 years ago, actually. We just had our 10-year anniversary. Um, started 10 years ago by my friend Chad and Sarah. And they, you know, they started small, like most things do, and just wanting to get kids psyched on bikes. And you know, Chad is just like this awesome coach. And so Chad and Sarah slowly over the years built this program. And now I think there were 900 kids that went through the Devo program this past year, 900 kids. And, you know, Durango is like a town of like 25,000 people. So it's like, if you have kids, they're probably in Devo. It's pretty awesome. Um, so I got involved. I've known Chad, you know, for a long time, but I was never a coach there. But uh, maybe three years ago, my best friend, John Bailey, good trip partner of mine, has done tons of stuff with me and went to Alaska this past year and the year before for trips. Um, he started in that Devo program. So it was mostly race based for many years, for five years or so, um, getting kids racing. Um, but John was like, Hey, you know, there's, there's also a need for kids that just want to ride bikes, but not necessarily race kind of like what we're doing now. And so he started a group called the explorers and it was just taking kids out on bikes and exploring and doing overnighters and you know, what people now call bike packing. And he did that for a few years. And then he was like, hey, we need another coach and wanted me to help him. And of course, I said yes. And the group has grown substantially. I think there's, there's, yeah, there's an intermediate, a beginner, intermediate, advanced course now. And there's probably 60 kids in the Devo Explorers group. And we do a spring and a fall um, course. And then we do a trip associated with each of those seasons. And we also do a trip, like an overnight trip. Um, in the summertime as well. That's super rad. Um, yeah, it's grown huge. It's it's gotten super popular, and we have we have kids that come from the race scene, and they're like, you know, I'm kind of done racing, and they want to be explorers. And sometimes we have kids that are like, hey, explorers has been awesome, and they go into the race thing. It's it's pretty awesome because it's just getting the kids on bikes, and they love it. Yeah. What kind of uh, what kind of lessons or information are you teaching these kids to get them ready to take up the mantle as adventurers everything that adults need to learn and figure out as they take up stuff like this it's it's all the same information um i mean these kids go out and they are pushing big heavy bikes like we have some of these kids pushing 60 70 pound bikes with all their stuff and they weigh like 60 70 pounds it's amazing (laughs) um so they're learning all the same lessons that you or i would learn if we were like hey i want to take up this bike packing thing or throw pack rafting into the mix they're learning how to do all that but as young teenagers it's amazing that's cool. That seems like uh, there will be a lot of 
serious and talented adventures coming out of Durango in years to come. Yeah, these kids are great. I mean, and some of them, you know, have been in the program for, well, John started Explorers, I think, four or five years ago. And some of these kids, a few of them have done, the season, you know, every single season throughout that time. And they're just like little badasses now. Yeah. Um, well, they're becoming big badasses, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, training them up to join you on adventure. Got to keep your uh, adventure stock, adventure partner stock going. <laughs> totally. Exactly. <laughs> Um, cool. So what's, uh, what's next for you? Do you have, uh, do you have plans on the horizon Are there, or sort of more broadly, is there anything you still want to like accomplish with your adventure life boxes to check that you haven't checked off yet? Um, I mean, it's all a huge box. I want to try to touch all parts of the box and get out there as much as possible. Um, I'm always game when people throw ideas out to me and along the way I've, I've gotten to see through some of these film festivals, meet some pretty rad people that I look up to. And, um, I'd love to go out with some of these folks and do some cool adventures. Um, Michael Becky, big climber guy, um, got to meet him this year. He's super cool. Um, and he's been using our alpaca pack rafts for years now, but, uh, I hope to get out with him on a fat bike sometime on one of his expeditions and climb some tower in the middle of Iceland or wherever. And, uh, that's definitely high on my list, stuff like that. Um, coming up this year, going to Spain and doing some climbing and road biking um, along the southern coast there is uh, pretty close to pulling the trigger on buying tickets for that. And my sister lives in Barcelona, and I've never been. So that's kind of a big draw to go see her because they might end up moving back stateside. So it seems like I should do that before that happens. But generally just, yeah, getting out there. Um, as much as possible. I want to see new places in the world and, and travel as much as possible. I've actually never been to Europe. So, um, yeah, just trying to, you know, get to farther out and more radical places. Cool. I think people will really enjoy hearing your story. I think people always love, uh, maybe I'm speaking for other people. I always love hearing about and reading about adventures that are sort of beyond my limit, but then thinking about, you know, right. how to, put that into my own context right yeah um i mean it's i'm obviously doing things that are maybe a little more crazy than the average person but it, it all runs in the same vein though like you can do these things that combine pack rafting and biking and climbing and you know you can do it in whatever level you choose it doesn't have to be like oh you go all the way to alaska to do this stuff like backyard trips i mean they're really like i value the backyard trips just as much because they force you to explore places that you maybe wouldn't go normally if you're like really out there and, Oh, okay. I'm going to jump on this river and see where it takes me. Um, you know, diving into a pack rafting thing definitely got me into seeing places that I would never have gone. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Steve Fastbinder for sharing his story. The Bicycle Story is produced by me, Josh Cohen. Our theme music is by Will McKinley Ward. If you like what you heard, please rate us in iTunes, subscribe, and share the link on social media. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>